Hello, and welcome to Community Calls, our ongoing effort to keep the community updated with COVID-19 and other health-related issues during the pandemic. I am Dr. Panagis Galiatsatos, an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a physician in pulmonary and critical care. Thank you for joining us. Fantastic, and good to have everyone back. Um, I will say that, you know, we are committed to being and conducting these phone calls until it is declared that our pandemic is over. So you get Kimberly and I for that much longer. With that said, we are going to adapt uh, as much as we can towards everyone's schedule as we are finding ourselves um, slowly uh, coming out of the pandemic due to the vaccine, due to you all disseminating the information to all your family, friends, colleagues, and neighbors, we're finding more and more that our listeners are are reclaiming a little bit of their Fridays back, especially during the summertime. So Kimberly and I will work with you all to find a good frequency that seems to help everyone. So you get the COVID-19 information you want while being able to do just everything uh, powerful uh, to learn this information, but at the same time, provide a little bit of uh, uh, care for yourself. If you can tell my voice is a bit hoarse, I apologize. I'm not sick, I promise you, nor is it allergies. For some of you sport fans, we have uh, right now the European Soccer Championship is on. And while uh, you know, the U.S. obviously is not playing in it and my, my country, Greece, is not in it, I'm a fan of some of the other countries. And uh, my voice gave out uh, last night as I was cheering a team on. So sorry about that. With that said, with that said, let's go over the numbers. We have Dr. Jonathan Zellman returning a fan favorite to many of our listeners. Uh, Dr. Zellman, uh, don't jump on yet. I know you're on, but don't unmute yet. But I will tell you, whenever we get emails asking when you're going to come back on, I'm telling you, you've uh, created a strong following amongst uh, our listeners. Right now, what I'll do is exactly what we've always been doing, discussing the numbers to keep us grounded, recognizing we're still in this pandemic. I'll share the vaccine numbers of how our state and country are are doing. Then I'm going to go over briefly before turning it over to Dr. Jonathan Zettelman, a new vaccine that this week put out a report and will be likely submitting uh, this month, if not early July, for emergency use by the FDA. So we'll go over that vaccine to have another key player in helping us to end this pandemic. So, ladies and gentlemen, you all, listeners, being on the front line, helping us spread this information to promote health and prevent disease, let's remind ourselves where we're at with regards to the pandemic. Globally, there have been 178,306,773 cases. Deaths, 3,859,000. 984, giving us a global mortality rate now of 2.2%. Here in the U.S., we have 34,377,883 cases since the pandemic started. Deaths are at 616,443, giving us a mortality rate here in the U.S. of 1.7%. The state of Maryland, 461,635 cases. That's at 9,486, giving us a mortality rate of 2.1%. I will say, uh, about two weeks ago, I think I said this right before our last phone call, I was in the uh, intensive care unit, 
We only had one patient in there with COVID, and they did great. Uh, I start back in the intensive care unit next week, and my colleagues are already telling me we don't have a COVID case in there at the moment. So more to come. Vaccines here in the United States, we are at 45% of adults fully vaccinated. With regards to the state of Maryland, we're at 53.2% fully vaccinated. On a side note, the cases that we have seen trickle into our intensive care units over at Hopkins Bayview have been one thing that unifies them all. They continue to those patients were unvaccinated. So more of an urgency to make sure you tell your friends and family how great the vaccine is, not only to helping us end the pandemic, but to protect you. Now let's talk about a new vaccine that looks like it will be released or uh, submitted for FDA approval uh, for emergency use here in the United States. The company is known as Novavax, and actually they are based out of here, out of Maryland. A little bit of technology, I don't want to overwhelm you all, but how does it work, right? Because vaccines are like transportation. You can take a car, plane, helicopter, train to get to a location. Vaccines, same thing. We want the outcome to be immunity, but we can get there through a variety of ways. As you remember, Moderna and Pfizer give us the RNA, kind of a genetic code, so our cells make more of this, make more of the coronavirus spike protein. Then you have Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca. They use kind of like a taxi cab or an Uber or Lyft, to, uh, uh, that's an analogy. They use a virus behaving like that to show off the spike protein to our bodies. Novavax, a little bit more unique. Essentially, what the Novavax vaccine does is inject into us a lot of the spike proteins. Uh, recombinant is what they call a recombinant protein. So we inject a ton of spike proteins into our arms. Our immune cells pick them up and begin to show them off to create an immune response. They get these spike proteins by actually making tons of them in cells derived from insects, that's specifically moths. So nonetheless, what we get is injected recombinant spike proteins in the Novavax vaccine. Well, how good is it? Well, it, the study that came out uh, recruited 30,000 individuals throughout the world. This is good, right? Remember, Moderna and Pfizer did about 45,000, Johnson & Johnson around 40,000. Novavax, 30,000, still a significant amount of people brought in. What they found was that this vaccine was 90% effective in preventing moderate to severe COVID-19 and 100% effective in regards to preventing severe COVID-19. That's key. You got to understand, that's key. We want to make sure you get the vaccine. It, even if you catch COVID, it'll be a mild case. For your home, a little bit miserable but it's a more or less uh, type of common cold you're experiencing. We want to pre prevent hospitalizations. We want to prevent people battling for their lives. So the study of nearly 30,000 volunteers has concluded, and they are looking to submit this data uh, to the FDA in this third quarter in order to gain FDA emergency approval. So this is great. We'll have another option, but keep in mind, just simply having a vaccine does not get us out of the pandemic. We still need those vaccines, those shots into arms. As my dad always said, books can be there, but unless you read them, they do you no good. So if the vaccines are there, they do us no good unless they're put to use. So um, from my standpoint, 
Our job is to give you all the confidence in this uh, technology in order to help you stay healthy and prevent disease. So we have a new one coming out. On a side note, they're looking to greatly utilize this vaccine, especially in countries that have been ravaged by coronavirus more recently, such as India. So helping out our colleagues on a global front is important since we are in a pandemic. And keep in mind, one country's success is another country's success, but one country's battles are really everyone's battles as people do travel. So with that said, Kimberly, we're done on my end. Uh, do you want to introduce our famous guest, Dr. Jonathan Zunnelman? Yes, I'd love to. Thank you, Dr. G. So I'd like to uh, welcome our returning guest, Dr. Jonathan Zunnelman, who is a professor of medicine and infectious disease at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. So thank you, Dr. Zunnelman and Dr. Z. We always love and appreciate you joining us on these Friday calls. Yeah, hi. It's great to be back. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can hear you fine. Were, now, were you oh, screaming okay. on the side? So I, I couldn't help but laugh um, when uh, Dr. G had mentioned about the soccer. Um, but it, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was wondering if we can start off with the latest emergency mandates and restrictions ending on July 1st. I'm just going to read real quickly that came out. All emergency mandates and restrictions will be terminated as of July 1st. There will be no longer any statewide mask order in effect for any settings, including schools, camps, and child care facilities. This came directly off of the governor's website. What What are you thinking? Um, um, yeah. So I am not <clears> – <throat> so – you know, I think that the governor clearly, you know, I think we've seen the governor in the past, you know, jump the gun on reducing things. And um, I am not running into indoor spaces over the summer. I'm taking a very cautious attitude. So I, I would look at this from the stamp, from, from a number of different standpoints. One is that I think those, the lifting of restrictions applies, and if you look in the fine print in what the CDC originally said, and I haven't read the governor's orders yet carefully, but if you look at what the fine print, they say if you have been vaccinated. So if you have not been vaccinated, it's still incumbent upon you uh, to mask until you've been fully vaccinated to protect you and your family. Uh, the other thing, you know, the other uh, thing related to this is that during the summertime, um, out we know, and, you know, as we've learned more and more about the pandemic and the virus, we know that outdoors carries extremely low risk exposures. So as we enter the summer, any activities that can be done outside, family gatherings, you know, social gatherings, uh, outside activities, I think would be, you know, would be fine uh, because we know that exposure that happens outside is very low and also sunlight, of which there's usually no shortage in Baltimore during the summertime, is actually is very effective at killing the virus. So I, so my approach is I think, you know, I think we're looking, you know, you know I think there's maybe economic reasons which are driving this, but I would be very, I'd be very cautious, and st I'm staging my activities. Uh, for example, um, I, you know, for, for example, if somebody comes to my house and I know they're vaccinated, I think it's okay to be masked. On the other hand, for example, 
Um, we, I had air conditioning guys at my house today, uh, and they both told me, they actually both wore masks because they asked if they were vaccinated, and there were two young guys. One was an African-American guy, one was a Latino guy. I asked them if they had been, if they'd been vaccinated. They said not yet. They haven't had enough time. And I sat down with them for 10 minutes and basically went through the reasons why they should get vaccinated. So I think engagement with folks who aren't vaccinated is really important to try to move the needle on this. I know that there's still a lot of hesitancy. So I'd say, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I am not running at the front of the line. I am, I say, I think everything's good. If you're vaccinated, you know, uh, you should be in very good shape, but I would, I'm being very cautious and not, you know, and the other, there's another thing about this too, which my wife, Carol points out and which I think we've mentioned on past calls and which Dr. G also is very aware of. Ask yourself how many people this past year got the flu or got colds. There were actually very few. And as we end the summer and as we enter into the normal flu and cold season, is it reasonable to wear masks when you're in public places? And the answer is I think we're going to be seeing more and more of this because people recognize what the impact of this was. So I look at this as taking the mandate off but I want people to feel perfectly fine in what we would call normative behavior. If they desire to wear masks uh, outside or when going to places like crowded places or venues, uh, we are working with folks to make that be perfectly accepted in normative behavior. Great. Thank you very much um, for sharing that. And they also mentioned that workplaces um, continue to retain the right to set their own policies as far as... Yep, yep. And, right, and we've seen that in some stores uh, as well. Dr. G, did you want to share any thoughts before we move into oh, some of yeah, the questions? No, no. I, I, um, I agree with uh, Dr. Zellman. Uh, in the, the, like, I, I didn't get a single flu case in the our intensive care unit this year. My colleagues may have, right? But this, this isn't the first. I've never had a flu case in the ICU, so pretty astonishing. I also hope that face masks do become somewhat of a socially accepted capability post-pandemic. As a lung doctor, I love to advocate for them because they've always been helpful for my patients with pulmonary disease who I tell them I can stabilize, I can, can help your lung diseases. But if you get a, a chest cold, it's really going to, undo a lot of good work we've had. So a lot of my patients used to always wear face masks and they've enjoyed the pandemic as, you know, they wouldn't be identified pretty easily as someone who was ill. So I'm hoping we do find some social norm using them, but I, I, I do agree with Dr. Zellman. Like, you know, there's, I, I, I'm probably going to walk slowly back into society, not uh, immediately dive in. Um, but, um, you know, uh, with that said, it's still remarkable to know we are here compared to where we yeah. were one year ago. Yeah, absolutely. And I think basically the fact that I kind of look at this almost, you know, think about it, Juneteenth is tomorrow and it almost feels like we're being a little bit liberated out of this. Thank you both no. for sharing. Oh, sorry, Dr. Good, good point, Doc. Well, I was just saying good point, Dr. Zellman. Good point. Back to you, Kimberly. Back to you. <laughs> Thank you. 
Um, so I'm going to go through some of these questions. Um, as always, I just always appreciate the very thoughtful questions that our listeners submit us. Um, so the first one is, have you heard any latest information about where we are with trials, clinical trials for children under the age of 12 and when they would be able to get vaccinated? Sure, I can answer that because actually I'm involved in some of them. And I think we also discussed this, uh, I think, on a previous call as well. Um, the major vaccine manufacturers, Pfizer, Moderna, uh, you know, and the others are all doing clinical trials. In so obviously we have, first of all, we have approval. Uh, there's EUAs for vaccines down to the age of 12. And the data show that the vaccines are highly, highly effective in adolescents. Um, there are, you know, as with as with with all the age groups, there are some side effects. But all the side effects appear to be are self-limited, nothing really severe. Uh, there are try, and we recommend that people get their kids vaccinated down to the age of 12. Uh, because that is will be a major advance and help them. Obviously, adolescents, you know, it's you know, um, have, by nature, um, are not you know often are not rule followers. So basically, the more we can get them vaccinated, the better off we'll all be. Uh, there are large clinical trials going down down to six months, um, and there's a couple of things which are going on with them. The way the clinical trials are set up is they just have to show that the vaccines are safe in kids, and there's a there's down there's two, there's ser several different strata uh, or levels. There's one down to between five and twelve, and then one down to between five, and then uh, uh, and then smaller kids as well. So they just have to show that the vaccines are safe. Uh, because we already know that they work, the FDA will accept safety alone. As you get into very small kids, there's also some studies going on looking at different doses because we don't want to give the same dose that you give to a 100-kilogram or 200-pound you know, adult as the same to a 15-pound or 20-pound six-month-old. So I think there's that all going on as well. These studies are all ongoing. We expect that they will have the data probably by mid-fall, uh, and the emergency youth authorization for kids will probably come by late fall. So my, my prediction is that we won't have vaccines for kids under 12 for the fall semester, but highly likely we'll, we will have that in time for the spring semester uh, or midwinter. So, excuse me. Now, my, now I'm getting a little hoarse. Um, so I find that you know interesting and concerning personally that if the mandate is lifted, including schools, but there won't be a vaccine appropriate for that age group until maybe the spring semester. Do you have any suggestions on how we can still keep our children safe until then? Right, right. That, that's a really important point. What, what's going to go on in schools? And there's a lot of debate on this right now. Uh, so there's a couple of things. One is it's very important that the adults, that the, all the adults be vaccinated. That includes the adults in the households and the staff in the schools. And that's pretty much ongoing. 
second is that the school system, and I know Baltimore City has done this as well extensively, have upgraded the ventilation systems in schools, and they will be keeping some spacing, and there will be modifications in terms of group school activities, for example, uh, lunch and things like that. Those will probably still be in place during the fall semester. We do know that transmission in young kids is different than it is in adults, the, 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 uh, the, the amount of space that you can have. Because kids are smaller, the amount of space that you can have between them uh, may be less as well. I think we will be seeing in a number of settings masks still in school. So I think, it, you know, and we know from the past year in a large number of school settings, including one study that I was involved in, is that when the mitigation measures are in place, transmission in school occurs very, very rarely. Schools is actually, school is actually a safe place to be uh, because it's a highly supervised environment. It turns out in almost all of the outbreaks that occurred in schools, they were due to events that occurred outside of school, for example, kids getting together at a party or, or, or a, or a, you know, a student's house and things like that. There was very little transmission in school. Uh, um, and, I, you know, and the school system, as I mentioned, in the city and the county are both very, very much involved in this. So I, uh, from, from a standpoint, number one, in-school transmission is actually something that is, uh, is, uh, is not zero. Uh, and I think in this situation, we don't have, it's very hard to in, 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 uh, imagine a situation where we have zero risk, but it's actually very, very low and very manageable. Second is even when kids catch COVID, uh, the disease is generally mild. Uh, so uh, it's, the disease in kids under 10 is something which is much different than in adults. So, uh, so I think, in the, in, so with all that, so with all of that type of information, with all that type of guiding, type of information guiding us, I think we will be able to have a fall semester which is safe. Obviously, once the vaccine comes, we would want to immunize the kids as much as possible. And I think we will be potentially looking at mandates from schools once the vaccines become approved. Thank you, Dr. Z. And I did mention on our last call, um, my son, who was in middle school, um, did get the Pfizer vaccine um, a few weeks ago and has some minor side effects. He just had his second vaccine shot and uh, had no side effects. And so he will be uh, considered fully vaccinated next week. So I'd like to, Dr. G and I both have, have shared, um, you know, some transparency and hope to put um, some ease, um, some of the anxiety at ease among our community. And, right. and you know, my son, 13 years old, so he um, he is doing well um, from the Pfizer vaccine. That's great. That's great. So there there are, um, you know, could be a couple of different reasons why folks may not be vaccinated, and one of which is allergies to the vaccine ingredient. Mm -hmm. How, what advice do you have for them to... Sure, sure. So it's an interesting question uh, because we've heard this a lot. Um, 
And in fact, in the uh, there was recently some papers in the allergy literature which have published all the components of the vaccine. So what, let's differentiate two things that happen with the vaccine. One is, as Kimberly, you mentioned, it's very, very common after getting the vaccine that you have some mild side effects, uh, sometimes some fever, sometimes some muscle aches, uh, feeling, uh, in the most severe case, feeling like you had a hangover. Uh, that or some skin reaction, uh, redness, soreness in the arm. Uh, all of these, in fact, when I got the vaccine after the second dose, I was pretty tired and had a mild fever the day after I got the second dose. These things are very common. These things are, the reason why these reactions occur is that this is actually your, our immune system responding to the vaccine in a positive way. The vaccines put our immune systems into overdrive to make antibodies, and this is actually exactly what we expect to happen. These are not allergic reactions. Um, the, the, the true allergy to the vaccine occurs very, very rarely. It occurs between 1 in 100,000 and 1 in 150,000 doses. It's usually an allergy which is felt to be due to one of the components of the vaccine called polyethylene glycol, which is actually, poly, which is actually the liquid in the vaccine. It's a, it's a artificially produced um, chemical, which is widely used uh, in the environment. It's safe. Uh, and when people have allergic reactions to the vaccine, they can be very easily managed in the, vac in the vaccine administration site, which is why for those of you who've gotten vaccinated, you'll remember that they ask you that to wait 15 to 30 minutes afterwards just to be observed, because that's almost always when these things occur. If people have had allergic reactions to other things, such as peanut allergy, food allergy, allergic allergies to penicillin, allergies to other drugs. These types of allergies have nothing to do and are not connected at all with the components of the vaccine. And we recommend, and CDC recommends, that uh, folks with a variety of different, different allergic conditions, they can get the vaccine safely. Similarly, we've, uh, we've been asked, I have asthma. And asthma is often, as you know, related to some type of allergy. I have asthma. Should I get the vaccine? And my response to that is absolutely. And the reason is, again, the, the allergic the, the allergies that may be associated with asthma are not connected to the vaccine at all. And second, if you have asthma, you have some type of underlying pulmonary disease. And we know if you get COVID, and you have asthma, and you have, or you have some type of underlying pulmonary disease, the risk for having something bad happen is substantially higher. So all the more reason to get the vaccine to prevent all these bad actors. Now, I'll point. I'll actually, you know, also uh, put out something to think about. People think about the allergic reactions, you know, in a you know because when they occur. They are, they actually are pretty substantial. And, you know, and people think about this and they say, oh my God, this is something which is really bad and I don't want that to happen. As opposed, and we need to put that into context in, this, in the sense that basically the risk of a really severe reaction 
is extremely, extremely low. So if we say one in 100,000, one in 150,000, that 150,000 is that if we vaccinate everybody in Baltimore City, we may have four people who actually get the real deal. And of those four people, they can all be effectively treated on-site uh, by the nurses at the vaccine site using a standard protocol. So, so I think think about it in that context as well. I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. And, um, you know, you discussed about some of the uh, symptoms or side effects from the vaccination. And there are a couple questions related to have, is a common side effect um, include joint pain in the legs or uh, yeah. increased inflammation, um, particularly with hypertension or hypotension? Yeah, so joint pain, so muscles, uh, so basically, uh, the medical terms that are used for these are myalgias, which are muscle legs, and arthralgias, which are joint pains. So joint pains in the arms or legs, especially in the large joints, knees, elbows, hips, can happen a day or two after vaccination. Absolutely. In terms of the second question, I think also it's something which is a very, it's a very good question. So, okay, is the vaccine, and I think the, the thought process for that was the vaccines causing some increased inflammation? Would that affect my blood pressure if I have hypertension? Or another common that we get, common one, what common one that we get is will it affect my diabetes or my glucose control? And the answer is, in both situations, absolutely not. Uh, the mechanisms for these things are completely different. And if you, are take, if you are taking medications for blood pressure and if you're, taking, and if you're do, uh, doing the things which you need to do for your diabetes, either insulin or, uh, or oral medications, the vaccine does not affect any of those things. And this is actually data which has been uh, developed, you know, as Dr. G mentioned, all of the vaccine studies included very large numbers of patients, 30, 40,000. And these, these subjects, these people who are in the vaccine studies, were evaluated very carefully, including their blood pressure uh, and other parameters. And there was no problem seen in those groups compared to the folks who got the, reg the placebo. So uh, although we do see some side effects as a result of the immune response reacting, we don't see inflammation coming uh, you know, resulting in, in, in these abnormalities. Now, I'll point out um, that when folks, you know, one of the things that we do know that's associated with blood pressure is anxiety. And we do know that when people, and there's something which is a very well-known thing called white, white coat hypertension, which both Dr. G and I have experienced, which means that when people go see the doctor, their blood pressure may be 10 to 15 points higher because they're anxious about getting their blood pressure checked and stuff like that. So if folks are, have these types of side effects in the vaccine and they're not informed and they get anxious about it, that could raise their blood pressure. Uh, but again, having the information really you know, helps people understand what's going on with their bodies. And even if their blood pressure goes up a couple of points as a result of this, this is something which is very, very temporary and will come down. 
Uh, that is an excellent segue into the next um, reason why some folks are hesitant to be vaccinated is um, needle anxiety and afraid to get the mm -hmm. vaccine. Uh, do you have any advice um, for those folks? And, and, and um, Dr. G, if you want to chime in too, what can we do as a community to help with some of this uh, vaccine hesitancy? Yeah, you know, I, I can uh, jump in. I mean, from the vaccine hesitancy standpoint, uh, you know, my, my first rule of thumb is just ask, you know, you know what, what their hesitancy is. Um, I, uh, I can give probably, as probably Dr. Zenneman could as well, we could probably sit back and talk about the vaccines for eight hours, right, if not longer. The, the challenge is in order to really help uh, drive a conversation of persuasion, I need to know what their reason is, right? Because from that standpoint, you can work with them. You know, if I want to talk about how safe it is, but they're more worried about was it rushed, well, we should talk about that, mm -hmm. right? So the first thing that I will always emphasize with regards to vaccine hesitancy, it's first acknowledge it. It's important, right? It's, it's a, a human trait to hear something that's new and be hesitant with it. If, you know, if my mom ever tries a new recipe, I'm going to be hesitant to try it. And I can't, I know what she's done before. I like that. I like her food there. So that's what I would say. You know, we're human beings. The concept of hesitancy is one of just a human trait. Just sit back and ask, where's the hesitancy? You know, that way you can help with that and, and try to understand uh, their point of view so you can meet them somewhere in the middle that hopefully then they can make the best decision for themselves. That, that will be my first and foremost always uh, recommendation. What about you, Dr. Zettelman? No, I absolutely agree, and I think, you know, again, establishing a safe space for people, and I think it's important for us, which we try to do, to establish a safe space where people feel that uh, any question about this is okay to ask, um, because obviously we have very strong feelings about that, and I think folks know coming into this that as an infectious disease doctor and as an ICU pulmonary doctor, we have very strong feelings about vaccination, but I think we want to feel make people feel free if they have if they have anxieties or concerns about this that uh, they're good, that their questions are going to be respected and we're going to try to meet them at a place which is comfortable to them and go through this. Uh, second, in terms of the needle hesitancy, <clears throat> unfortunately, there's no way to do this without without a shot. So I would so so the way I the way I would do this uh, is that. First of all, the, the needles are extremely small, and I basically tell you, you know, have folks, you know, tell, you know, and the needles and the vaccine itself doesn't hurt. It's it's all it's literally a pinprick, and if necessary, I would have somebody hold their hand when they're vac when they're getting vaccinated. So they're just, um, you know, between holding somebody's hand and saying it's going to happen, the vaccine could have occurred within those five seconds. Oh, Dr. Zellman, <clears throat> excuse me, you mentioned, um, you know, it, the fact that it is, um, you know, a shot, but I'm just thinking particularly for younger children about the influenza vaccine being nasal sprayed. Do you think there would ever be a time in the future that this might be available as a nasal spray? Um, it's an interesting question. I haven't seen anything in the pipeline yet that's going to be a nasal spray. All of the shots so far are injectables. Which actually, you know, we do have the flu. You're right, Kimberly. There is the flu. There is the flu nasal spray, 
But mostly, even the other adolescents, even the other shots that are given to adults and adolescents are almost all injectables right now. Got it. Thank you. Um, so earlier on the call, Dr. G had mentioned, you know, some of the, uh, the effectiveness, particularly with uh, the Novavax of the vaccination that um, hopefully will be approved in the near future. Um, but can you clarify, can vaccinated people still spread the virus? Interesting question. So I think we've learned a lot about this over the past couple of months. So first of all, let's look at, the, at, the, at, the, at vaccinated people. One of the reasons why both Dr. G and I are not rushing into the world, but we're doing this very carefully, because even if you vaccinate everybody, there is a group among us who will not respond to the vaccine. And those are people who are on a variety of different medications that suppress their immune system. So let's say if you're a cancer patient and you're on chemotherapy, if you're a transplant patient and are taking drugs that suppress your immune system, or if you have a variety of diseases such as uh, rheumatoid arthritis or uh, inflammatory bowel disease, which is Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, those types of, uh, those types of diseases, people take drugs which suppress their immune system. So these people will respond partially or in some cases not at all to the vaccine. Uh, and, we, you know, obviously we don't, uh, and these folks really we strongly recommend, and many of them do wear masks all the time, even after vaccination, and which is why I think it's really important that we make mask wearing normative. That if somebody wears a mask, you know, in a place, it's like no different than wearing a hat. You know, we just want to make that that's, if you feel fine doing that, we accept that. Uh, in terms of, but for the large variety of people, if you've been vaccinated, um, you are, uh, you are actually um, at, you're also protected almost as much from getting what we call asymptomatic infection, where infection where you don't have symptoms. And even if you get infected, we know that the, the amount of virus that these people have is extremely low and highly unlikely to infect other people. So I think we can safely say now, so that was the technical part, the answer to your question, Kimberly, in, uh, in you know in a straight up in a straight up answer is, with the information that we have now, I think I strongly believe that if you are vaccinated, even if you get infected, you are extremely unlikely to pass it on to anybody else. That's very encouraging news. Thank you. Yes. So as we. Um, you know, looking at the time as we kind of wrap up, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about herd immunity as, you know, mm -hmm. Dr. Fauci has, you know, discussed it over the last year, year and a half. But to begin, what exactly is herd immunity? Okay. So herd, Im herd immunity uh, is a theoretical concept. And herd, it's H-E-R-D. And think about it like a herd of cattle or a herd of sheep 
like a shepherd. Uh, here we're talking about herd as the human population is the herd. The herd immunity is actually a concept which says, which asks the question, what proportion of the population need to be vaccinated in order for the virus to basically be quenched or be basically have no place else to go? Uh, and that the concept of herd immunity is has a couple of uh, there's a couple of things which go into it. One is the proportion of people who are vaccinated, and the other is how infectious is the virus. So we know, for example, for measles, which is the most infectious virus that we have, um, or smallpox, which is not with us anymore, but measles is a very good example. We have to have about 98% of the population vaccinated in order to prevent outbreaks. Um, with COVID, it's interesting because people thought originally it was about 85% total population vaccinated. My sense is actually based on what we've seen in the data, my sense is probably a bit lower, maybe as low as 75%. But the bottom line is we need to get um, the number of – it's a target for us to go for in terms of the total number of population to completely get rid of the virus. If we don't have that number of people vaccinated, uh, the virus will still be with us circulating among people who are unvaccinated. And think about it almost like a random ball game. If you have a very high number of people vaccinated, if I'm infected, the virus basically has no place to go because it does, you know even even in social interactions, the virus basically I can't infect anybody else because if everybody that I come into contact with is vaccinated, it doesn't have any place to go. As the number of people that get vaccinated goes down. If I'm walking around a, uh, a, let's say, for example, let's take 50%. If I'm infected and I'm walking around a random group of people uh, who are unvac you know, 50% vaccinated, that means one out of every two is susceptible. If it's 75%, it's one out of, one out of four, so 25%. If it's about 85%, it's about one out of it's about one out of every eight. 87% is one out of every eight. So you can see, as the number of people vaccinated goes up, the probability that I can infect somebody goes down, and the sweet spot that we look for is where that uh, you know that those interactions basically you know basically fail to you know, the virus basically stalls out in a population. So we think it's about 75-80%. So Dr. Settleman, that was a, um, a fantastic answer because you, I don't even have to ask the other questions leading up to it because you included all of them. So, you know. Oh, thank, great. <laughs> great. <laughs> thank thanks. you for that. Um, you know, because I was just, and you, you answered this throughout the call, you know, as Dr. G mentioned earlier, that the United States um, is at 53.2%. Uh, um, so, you know, you know, I always kind of personally question why we would lift the, the, the mask mandate if we're not quite at that um, expected herd immunity. 
But it is very, um, you know, encouraging, as you mentioned, that the probability of vaccinated folks right. spreading the infection. So um, I, I just really appreciate, you know, you know, just really kind of putting our minds at ease um, with those that are vaccinated. And, right. of course, we always right. want to do what we can to help encourage folks um, to get vaccinated. Uh, is there any? Right. I'm not. I, I say. I say, Kimberly, I'm not a politician, and so I don't. That's why I don't make. I think you won't see infectious disease doctors or pulmonary doctors running into the restaurants. I I agree with you, <laughs> and even with the latest, I I'm on the same page. I, I'm not quite ready to fully um, engage. You know, I I'm still wearing my my mask indoors. Um, and particularly because I just, you know, and, and that might be more of a, a personal choice for many of us, you know, when we're ready, even if we've been vaccinated. So um, did you have any? But I think to your, to yeah. your point, I think it's important. That's your personal choice. And I think it's important for us as a society to respect that and embrace that. And we've seen examples outside, you know, in, in other places where people got really annoyed at that. And I think that's completely inappropriate. Thank you, Dr. Zolman. Um, so any other lasting comments or suggestions or advice from either uh, Dr. Zolman or Dr. G? Uh, the, the one thing I would say, I, I like uh, what Dr. Zolman said, you won't see uh, an infectious disease person running into the restaurant. But I, I, I feel like you guys were a group of individuals, individuals who were also hesitant even before the pandemic. So um, I understood uh, Dr. Zolman. But I, I really appreciate such insight. And at, at the end of the day, you know, um, you know, in medicine, we do take a very cautious approach um, as we ease back into anything. As you can tell uh, from Dr. Zunman's conversation today, uh, with great questions from the community and from Kimberly, there's not a switch. We just flip and we call it a day. Um, we, we gradually transition into this, and it just takes time. So thank you, Dr. Zunman, so much. And thank you to our listeners. We are super excited to help. So. Kimberly, back over to you, my friend. Yeah, and no, no more soccer games for you, Dr. G. I But actually, if he's playing outside in the summertime, it's absolutely okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you, Dr. Zunderman. <laughs> so um, as I wrap up again, I just want to thank you, Dr. Zunderman, um, for joining us again. It is always a, a pleasure and an honor to have you on these calls and, and sharing your expertise and recommendations. So thank you very much. And thank you, Dr. G, as well, as always. My pleasure. So before I turn the call over to Reverend Teague, um, I just want to remind everyone that our next call is Friday, July the 22nd at 11 a.m. However, as Dr. G mentioned earlier um, in the call, we will want to hear from you. Um, as our community to better understand what your needs are, what you're thinking as we are approaching um, hopefully uh, the end of this pandemic. So I will be creating a very brief survey to send out, again, just to hear your thoughts, how often the frequency, what are you thinking about these calls as we continue these um, throughout the, the end of the pandemic and afterwards. So please take a look out for that. Um, but. Uh, now, for those who would like to stay on the call, Reverend Teague will offer our closing thoughts and a prayer. Thank you, Kimberly. Um, you can hear me okay? Yes, thank you. And thank you, uh, Dr. G and Dr. Zinnelman. I really appreciate always the insights that you guys bring.
Um, today I am mindful of the fact that I'm offering this prayer, these thoughts, on the eve of Juneteenth. And this is, will be our, today actually is our first national holiday um, uh, in, in memory of Juneteenth. Saturday, June 19th, um, 2021 will be the 156th anniversary of Juneteenth. It's the day that enslaved people in Texas learned that they had been freed under the Emancipation Proclamation two years after it was signed. Juneteenth is a time, I think, for us all to reflect on the impact of this past year, including our personal and professional life changes during COVID and all the healthcare disparities that's been experienced by people of color during this time as well as the police brutality and the violence that we've been seeing around us. So this is an opportunity, I think, Juneteenth, um, to really um, remember um, that time that was um, a date in our shared history that is full of pain, but also some seeds of hope. And I think today we can be courageous and an embodied uh, community with a commitment to a different history for generations to come. Maya Angelou said that history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived, but if faced with courage, it need not be lived again. So my prayer today is to a God of, of both pain and hope, that we may walk toward the unbearable pain of inequity and stand in it as a force of healing and restitution. May we face the past with courage. May we stand for hope and renewal. May we, as the beloved community, advocate together for a future that is fundamentally just. May we hold each and every person in the light of love and esteem. We ask God of pain and hope to be with us, to bless us, and keep us until we come together again. Amen. Amen. Uh, thank you, Reverend Teague. And thank you again, everyone, for listening today. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible by the Johns Hopkins Bayview Healthy Community Partnership, its Department of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Medicine for the Greater Good, and the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research.